Today, we are going to end a series that we began at the very beginning of the year. I've had a lot of people come up and say, are we really going to end it this week, Pastor? And I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or I'm saying, are we finally going to get out of this thing? Now, but most people have affirmed that they can't wait to hear how this ends because it's been an, such an exciting, exciting journey. Now, we started the year with this 2012, the end of the world theme, because that's a big theme going on in culture, and it will continue as we reach this magic date of December 21st, 2012, when the Mayan long count calendar comes to a close, and everyone thinks that is going to mark the end of the world. Well, if you're a guest today, please understand that you have come at the end of a six-week journey. And so obviously we can't review everything that we've discovered and we've learned. And and we would encourage you to check our resource table for how you maybe could catch up if you find that this is a subject of interest to you. But we've covered a lot of ground. Week one, we debunked the six most popular doomsday myths that are out there that claim the world is going to end in 2012. In week two, we demonstrated from a biblical perspective how it is actually impossible for the world to end in 2012. In fact, if everything biblically lined up today, it would be at least 1,007 years before the world could end. Then we began to look at a revelation that God gave to his prophet Daniel, who was an Old Testament prophet in exile in the land of Babylon, and God revealed to Daniel how all of this was going to end, how God was going to complete the work of Messiah in the national uh, life of Israel. And remember, the end of the world, the real end of the world, is inseparably linked to God's relationship with Israel. Now, in that prophecy, God prophesied 490 years In our study, we saw 483 years that that were already fulfilled. But then we saw something happen that caused God to put in a state of suspended animation the final seven years. And that event was Israel's official rejection of Jesus as their long-expected Messiah. But we also discovered that one day, God is going to restart that prophetic clock and fulfill those final seven years. Now, those years, as revealed in the book of the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, are going to be characterized by tribulation unimagined. Tribulation unprecedented in the history of mankind. In fact, half of the world's population is going to die during those seven years. It's going to be a horrible, horrible time. Now, those seven years will be bookended first by what theologians call the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That those who are dead... At the sound of the trumpet, at the loud command from Christ, will rise from the grave, and those who are alive at the time will also be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. In other words, before these seven years of destruction begins, God is going to have a rescue mission, and He is going to instantaneously take all believers out of this world so they won't have to experience the time. Now, at the other end of the seven years will be the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Described in the Bible, Jesus coming on a charger and the armies of heaven following him. Now, last week we noted that following his return, Jesus is going to set up a millennial kingdom. He is going to literally rule as king of the whole earth for a thousand years. And we saw that these thousand years are going to be the antithesis of the previous seven years. Instead of chaos and destruction and death, 
When Jesus comes and reigns, He's going to restore the earth. And the deserts will bloom. And, and there will be harmony in creation again. There will be harmony in the animal kingdom. Lifespans will increase. We saw last week the Bible says, if someone lives to only a hundred years old, they'll be considered to have died at a very young age. It is going to be an amazing, amazing experience. But we ended last week with this thought, that after the seven years, after the thousand years, the end still has not yet come. So what happens next? What happens that brings the end of the world? Well, let's continue as God reveals that to his disciple John on the Isle of Patmos in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, it says this, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Now, as unimaginable as it is, at the end of those thousand years, Satan and his demonic empire has been put in prison in the abyss and sealed over for those thousand years. But at the end of those thousand years, God is going to send the angel with the key to that abyss and unlock it and let Satan and his demons loose again. Now, remember... There'll be three groups of people that go into the millennial kingdom. One are the raptured saints that God takes out before the seven years. Another group are those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation time, and they are martyred for the cause of Christ. They're brought back to life, and they go into the millennial kingdom. And a third group are those who survive the tribulation and who will continue to live a human experience. Now, all of them have one thing in common, is that they're all saved. They've all trusted Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. They somehow survived the tribulation period, and they enter into the millennial kingdom and continue a normal human life journey, except it's the antithesis of the seven years they've just experienced. Now they enter into this tranquil, peaceful, amazing kingdom that Jesus Christ rules. Now, of these people who go into the kingdom in their same physical bodies, they also carry into the kingdom their sin nature, because God has not totally dealt with sin yet. Now, also, because we noted that during this millennial kingdom, this group of people will continue a normal human experience. They'll still get married. They'll still bear children. And as they bear children, they will pass on to those children the same thing every parent has passed on to their child since the fall of man, and that is a sin nature. What this final scene reveals is that at the end of the thousand years, there will be a large number like the sand on the seashore that will ultimately be deceived by Satan and join yet one last final rebellion against God, against Jesus' rule. Now, I don't know, you may be thinking as I had thought, why would God allow this? Why would God allow Satan to have influence over these people? Well, the answer is really very simple. 
Since the beginning of creation, since God created man, he has always given man a choice as to whether to embrace God or to rebel against God. Even Adam and Eve had that choice. God said he gave them everything in the garden. He said, there's only one thing that you cannot do. Don't eat the fruit of the garden of the tree that's in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, just don't do that. You can eat anything else in the garden. You can go anyplace else. And they chose the lust of their eyes, and they ate that fruit. Now, every man, every woman who has been born since then has made a choice, and our choice has always included rebellion against God or indifference to Him. Now, injustice to every human being who has ever lived, God must extend the same choice to those who are born during the millennial kingdom. And sadly, tragically, even though they will have experienced the physical kingdom of Christ, the Bible reveals that an untold number of them will be deceived by Satan and choose sin rather than God. Now, there's really not a battle. It goes on to say, they march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. In other words, Satan leads them to all march on Israel, all march on Jerusalem, where Jesus reigns. But look what it says, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There's not really a battle. Actually, Satan has deceived them and gathered them to the place of their execution. Because immediately God sends fire from heaven and eradicates them. From the face of the earth. Goes on to say, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. For those who hope or who philosophize that when people die, they just go into a state of eternal extinction, eternal annihilation, this defies that philosophy. The Antichrist, known as the beast and the false prophet, have now been in the lake of fire for 1,000 years. And Satan now is thrown into the lake of fire. And it says they will be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now God has once and for all taken care of the sin issue. Almost. There's one more act that God must execute. It reveals as our story continues. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, God must, in His justice, He must execute punishment for sin. 
See, God, because He's righteous, God, because He's holy, He cannot wink at sin. He must address it. He must punish it. Now, in the lives of believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus has satisfied that debt. Jesus has paid the price. But for those who have not trusted Christ, for those who have rejected that, rebelled against that, they'll stand before this great white throne. And the first book that will be opened is the book of life. And God will search to see if their name is in that book, but tragically none of their names will be in the book. And so the other books will be brought, and the other books will be a record of every thought, every action, every behavior in the life of that individual standing before the throne. And no matter how good they are, they will come to the full realization and horror that they're not good enough. The passage goes on to say, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not a very popular passage of Scripture to address in our day. But if we are true to God's Word, if we are true to the teachings of Jesus Christ Himself, we must confront this final truth. And in fact, as believers, it is the most loving thing that we can do is to be true and to warn those who have not put their faith in Christ that there is a disastrous consequence that's waiting at eternity's threshold. Then the scene whole changes. Everything changes. We go from that scene of eternal damnation to Revelation 21, verse 1, where John now sees a whole different picture. Then he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, after that final act of judging sin is finished, God brings into fruition what He had inspired His Apostle Peter to write about. In 2 Peter 3.10, says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. After that final act, after sin has been eternally dealt with, in Satan and in man, then God destroys the earth. It's not a total makeover. He brings what was created into the state of uncreation. And He creates everything new. John says, I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. Because everything that had existed before has passed away. And then he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down 
out of heaven from God. Now, where did all the believers go? Well, God was bringing into uncreation everything that was created. We were safely transported from the old earth to the holy city. And now the holy city comes down to the new earth. And it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. How many heard about the streets of gold? How many heard about the pearly gates? That is all a continued description in the passage of the holy city. Now the holy city has come down from heaven to the new earth where we will dwell. This will be our abiding place, a new earth, and God will dwell with us and He will reign and rule from the holy city. And then it says He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. It says, for the old order of things, the way things used to be, has ceased to exist. It says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything, what church? New. I've changed it all. Everything that had happened before is gone into extinction. And everything now, is brand new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. How many times have you said to somebody to make an emphasis, to make a point? Now you mark this down, or you hear my words. Listen to my words. No new taxes. (laughs) Well, we know what that's worth. But God Almighty says, you write this down. Everything I have revealed to you, everything I have promised is trustworthy and true. You can live your life by it and you can put your eternal hope in it. Now, we've entered into the eternal kingdom of God. Eternal kingdom, not a thousand years. The eternal kingdom of God. John goes on to describe it. I do not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine under for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its light. Now God is with us. God radiates His holiness and lights up the entire city. Revelation again warns. Revelation 21:27 Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful why because the sin issue has been eternally dealt with And look what it says but only those whose names are written in the book of life The only ones going into the eternal kingdom are those whose names are in the book of life So the eternally significant question becomes, how do I get my name in the book of life? And that, there's no mystery to. Because God has openly answered that question. In passages like Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And church, what is that name? Jesus. 
John 1.12, yet you all received him. Who? To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He recorded their name in the royal family album, and that book is called the Book of Life. Who will be in the eternal kingdom? Only those whose name are in the Book of Life. Who will be in the millennial kingdom? We saw that group of people, but what is the common characteristic about all these people? They have all believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So who gets into the millennial kingdom, church? Believers, right? Who? Believers. Who gets into the eternal kingdom, church? Believers. Who? Believers. So who is really ready for eternity? Believers. No. Not necessarily. Write this down. Salvation is not preparation for eternity. You say it again. Salvation is not preparation for eternity. Salvation is survival. Salvation is is God's grace. Salvation is what God, out of His mercy and His infinite love, has given to us by which we can escape eternal death and dying and instead trade it for eternal life and a positive eternal experience. But salvation is not preparation for eternity. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. That's what we've been talking about in this series. But look what it says. And then He will reward each person according to what? What He has done. Salvation is not our reward. Why? Because we didn't do anything to gain it. We don't merit it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. It was given to us as a gift of love from God. So, what is our reward? Well, the Bible gives us some snapshots. One is found in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writing to these believers. And he says this, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? He says, is it not you? In this case, he says, what are we doing all this for? What is our payoff? What is our reward? What's our joy? What's our hope when we finally stand before Jesus? What's our crown going to be? He says, isn't it you? In other words, he's saying, what our reward is, is the fact that God has used us to give you the gospel, and you have believed on the name of Jesus Christ, and you are treasure to our eternal account. Look what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. 
Paul at the end of his life. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the what? Crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will what? Award me on that great day. Now, I didn't put it up here, but it goes on to say, and not only to me, but to everyone who has longed for His appearing. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the what? Crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. In other words, blessed, happy is the person who finally stands before Jesus Christ, no matter what life challenges they had, no matter what they had to suffer, no matter what they had to sacrifice, because when they faithfully endured that trial... That earned them a reward. And the reward is a what? It's a crown. What is our reward? Crowns. The first service we sang about it. Holy, holy, holy. Casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea. Why crowns? Who says Revelation 24? And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They came to life, and read it with me, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Read it, last statement again. And with Christ a thousand years. Those who were martyred during the tribulation period, who God brings back to life. He doesn't bring them in just to have, a, have an adventure in the millennial kingdom and just have a good time. He brings them in the kingdom to reign with Him. Look what it says in Revelation 26. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. Who are we talking to now? Now we're talking to the raptured saints who come back with Jesus at the second coming. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and read it with me, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. We who will come back with Christ in His second coming aren't coming back to have a vacation. We are coming back to reign with Christ. Who are we going to reign over? All of those who have survived the tribulation and come in their physical bodies into the millennial kingdom. Now watch this. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Here is a trustworthy saying. In other words, God's saying again. You mark this down. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Now stop. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. What's He talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about if we died with Him. In other words, if we died to ourselves, if we finally got it and confessed with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and not me, there's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven. There's no way that I can possibly get there on my own merit. I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to live to Christ. When I do that, when I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am given survival. I am giving life. If I die with Him, I will also live with Him. Semicolon. Which means that what is to follow is linked to what has already been said. But yet it's a little different. It says, if we endure... Read it with me. We will also reign with Him. If we endure, read it again. We will also reign with Him. Also reign with Him. 
Look at that passage in Revelation again, chapter 21, verses 22 and 24 and verse 26. Again, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Now look what it says. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. We're not talking about the millennial kingdom anymore. Now we are talking about the eternal kingdom, and it says the kings of the earth, that's the new earth, will bring their splendor into it. Who are these kings? And who are the people who comprise these nations? Well, who gets into the eternal kingdom? Believers. So who are these kings? We are not in eternity going to play harps and float on clouds. We are going to be given responsibility and positions of honor and positions of authority and positions not which we can brag about and wear titles but that we can serve God who we will live with and see and whose glory will radiate and light our very existence. And when we're in the presence of God, as that little chorus that I used to sing with my youth group when I was a pastor says, by and by, when I look on His face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face, by and by, when I look on His face, I'll wish I had given Him more. Why crowns? Because we are intended to reign. That's our eternal purpose. Jesus said again, and then, when He comes with His angels, He will reward each person, each man, each woman, according to what He, according to what she has done. Done when? Done now, in this life experience. This is a theme that's repeated by Jesus in His ministry so many times in so many of His parables. One example is Luke 16, verses 10 and 11. He concludes this parable by saying, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worthy wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you didn't pass the test in this life, if you didn't handle the, 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 the really worthless stuff here in this life and the material things and the money and stuff in this life, if you didn't handle it for my glory, why do you think I would reward you with eternal glory and riches and responsibility? Matthew twenty five twenty one, the end of another parable. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. What does it say? I will put you what? in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. He's not saying, I'm going to give you a couple more vineyards to watch over during this life. I'm not going to give you a couple more barns to store stuff in. He's saying, I'm going to put you in charge. Come and join your master's happiness. His master's happiness is not here. His master's happiness is enjoyed in the eternal kingdom he's talking about later. Luke 19:17. Look what it says, well done, my good... Servant, his master replied. Now look what it says. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of what church? 
of what? Take charge of ten cities. What cities? Cities in the eternal kingdom. He's saying because you were faithful in little things, you go ahead and take care of the new Miami, the new Fort Lauderdale, the new Davie, the new Pembroke Pines. The new, you, you go ahead and take care of those two cities. You, you've been faithful in a few things. You go ahead and take care of Detroit. That was a mess. You take care of the, all those cities around there. And you take... Because we are intended to reign. And this life is all about getting ready to reign. And if we do not pass the test here, we will not be the people who get to reign with Christ. We'll be there with Him, but we'll be the ones being reigned. Salvation is not preparation for eternity. Now, just like all the unbelievers are going to stand in judgment before God, Believers will also stand in judgment. What do you think we're going to be doing during the seven years of the tribulation God has taken us out of here for? What are we going to be doing? We are going to be experiencing a different kind of judgment. Theologians call it the Bema judgment seat of Christ. This isn't a judgment for our sins because as the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owed. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. I don't have any sin yet. God has taken care of my sin issue through Jesus' sacrifice. So what am I going to stand judgment for? What are you going to stand judgment for? How we've lived this life. How much He can trust us. What He can reward us with in the eternal kingdom. Now this describes that judgment. It says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, there is nothing worth living life other than Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that's going to bring you eternal dividends. If any man builds on his foundation using gold, silver, or costly stone, if we spend our life and the pursuit of our life is building our stock portfolio, or wood, hay, and straw, if we pursue things that really have even no earthly value, it says our work will be shown for what it is, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his what? Reward. He'll receive salvation? No. He'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. Why? Because salvation is God's mercy. It's God's love. It is what God has done for us so that we can survive eternal destruction. But only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, we'll arrive... And stand before the Savior who sacrificed Himself for us and have nothing to offer Him as a a demonstration of our love, of our thanksgiving, of our sacrifice. In other words, as the old expression goes, we'll arrive by the hairs of our chinny-chin-chin. Salvation is not our reward. Salvation is not preparation for eternity. Jesus says in Luke 3.18, Do not deceive yourself. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. In other words, Jesus is saying, Don't be deceived. 
by buying into all this cultural philosophy and all this materialism and all that kind of stuff. He said, if that's where you are and that's what you're doing, that's what your life is characterized by with, you need to become a fool so that you can learn what is wise. 2012, the end of the world? No way. Not going to happen. But it is time to wake up. Romans 13, 11 and 12. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. In other words, all this we talked about today is a day nearer today than it was whenever we believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Ephesians 5, 14 and 15. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. In other words, wake up because everything in this culture, everything in this world is evil. It is working against where God wants to take you. It is working against what God wants to give you. And if you follow that path, you are going to miss out on unimaginable blessings by God. Now, you'll go to heaven because God, out of His love, has made that provision for you. But what then? What will you stand before the Savior who died on the cross? What will you have? In your bag. Jesus said, Matthew six nineteen twenty. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen. Salvation is survival. It is not Preparation for eternity. So you ask, then what is? And you ask, then how do we prepare for eternity? That starts next week with a brand new series entitled, What Matters Most. What Matters Most. Not going to leave you in the lurch. Not going to leave you trying to figure it out for yourself. Next week we begin preparing for eternity. Next week we begin breaking it down scripturally just like we did the end of the world. Next week we learn what matters most. Let's bow our heads. For now, know this. Salvation is survival. And if you're a man or a woman who is here today and you've never taken advantage of God's offer of survival. God's offer of Jesus Christ who He sent to die on the cross. The most quoted verse of all the Bible, you see it on the football games in the end zone. You saw it on Tim Tebow's eyeshadow. For God so loved the world. Listen to that again. For God so Love the world. That He gave His one and only Son.
that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's a gift. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way. You may be a model person, a model citizen, but unless you can prove perfection from the moment you were born before God, you don't stand a chance. And if anyone claims that here, the Bible even says this of you, if any man claims he has no sin, then he's a liar, and the truth does not lie in him. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And right now the Spirit of God is working with your conscience and calling you to that faith. While no one's looking around and believers are praying, you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. But right now, you know you need to. You just slip up your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior, but right now, God is speaking to me. Anyone, as we wait a moment. Father, the testimony here today says that everyone has trusted you, and again, we really hope that's true. Because the consequences of not trusting you are eternally, unimaginably horrible. God, I pray if there's a man or a woman here today that you were convicting, that you were talking to, and for whatever reason they just couldn't bring themselves to identify that need publicly, then, Father, help them to know that your invitation is open when this service closes. Then come to me or one of the ushers at the door or someone at the welcome center or or anywhere, God, and we'll, we'll get them with a pastor, we'll get them with an elder or a deacon, and Lord, we'll get them with somebody who can show them in God's Word how they can leave this campus with the absolute assurance and promise that their sins have been forgiven and eternal life waits for them at death's door. Now, Father, since everyone here professes to be a believer, my prayer is that you help us to wake up, starting with me, and then resonating through every seat in this worship center today. God, help us to wake up. Help us to have a hunger to come back for this next series so that we at least understand what really is preparation for eternity. God, help us to go where You want us to be and to do what You want us to do. Help us to have something to give to you when we stand before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, now listen, I know that there are folks sitting here right now saying, salvation will be enough for me if I just get in. That's enough for me. Please forgive me if I'm blunt. Don't be a fool. It's not going to be enough. You're going to want more. More, more, so much more. 
more of my life than I e'er gave before. By and by, when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. I've never sat in a hospital room next to a person dying who says, I gave too much time to God. I gave too much money to God. I gave too much of my effort, energy to God. Never once. But I sat next to a whole lot of them who said, I wish I'd given them more. Now's our chance. I'm excited to share the next series with you. I hope you're excited to learn from it.